Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the special 150th episode of the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. So we wanted to do something special to celebrate and commemorate getting 150 episodes out, who'd have thought it? So what we did was a special live Q&A where we brought in a live audience. Uh, We filled out actually one of our office meeting rooms just behind us. And I invited my friend and special guest Joe Valenti who won The Apprentice in the UK last year. Uh, And basically the questions that the disruptive entrepreneur community most wanted to ask us, they asked us, and we shared our experiences with you. So let's tune in to the special 150th episode. Right, so we're live in the, well, I would call this a studio, except it's not. We've stolen our uh, meeting room for this uh, live special 150th podcast episode. Um, Who'd like to kick us off with the first question? John. So microphone to John. John, thanks for coming along. So if you can go back to the first 12 months anniversary of Progressive and knowing what you know now, what would you do different or even quicker? We're in a quite fortunate position where we've made tens of millions of pounds. So why would I do anything different? Because I'm pretty happy with that. So obviously there's some things that we did that worked. And the reason I think that's important to say is a lot of people are always looking at what they did wrong and that can damage your self-worth sometimes. And it's equally important to look at what you do well. So I think what I did well was I had no concept of failure because I was so naive about property and business that I didn't know all the problems that you encounter that I just went with a really open mind. And, you know, I speak to a lot of people in business who've been in business 20, 30 years and, well, if I'd have known then what I'd known now, I wouldn't have fucking done it. You know, because, you know, when you like, you know, when you've been in property a long time and you've got a load of properties, you've got a load of tenants, you know the sort of stuff they get up to. And um, so it was quite good that I was open minded and I didn't know what failure was. So I think that was the first thing. Um, I went out and just met people for the sake of meeting people, because most of you know me through Progressive Property as well as the podcast. Um, the very first networking event I ever went to in the Holiday Inn just down the road in Thorpe Wood, um, ironically right next to the police station, um, I met Mark there. And you know, you could say that was lucky and it was lucky and I acknowledge that. But I must have been open-minded to meeting someone like him who was different to me, who was ahead of me. And instead of looking at him and being sort of either envious or jealous or, or even feeling in, insignificant towards him, I just had, well, let's, we should just talk. I need to know what he knows. So I think I was good at that point at um, networking. And, there, and I wasn't good at networking, but I was excited by property. And because of that, I wanted to go out and learn about it. And because one of the main ways to do that is to find people who you can learn from. Now, if you're in a career and you go to your boss and you say, look, mate, in a, in a year, I'm having your job. So what you've got to do is sit there and tell me how to get your job. 
they're going to tell you to do one. But you can go in property forums and communities and you basically, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do that? You know, you get a couple of haters, but most people will be like, oh, well, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do. And, you know, because we're all in different areas of the country, people will share. So I think it's important to say what worked. I wouldn't change a lot. I think the things I do differently is I would hire quicker, I would leverage more, and I would create my systems and processes earlier. If someone had said to me, Rob, why don't you hire someone for two hours a week to lock you in a hot room like we're in, because it is hot in it already, I mean, we've only just started, and just for, spend two hours saying, what did you do? How did you do it? What did you do this week? Are oh, you went to see an estate agent. What did you say? What did they, what did, how did they react? How many viewings did you do? What went wrong? What went right? And if you've got someone interviewing you to get out of your head the systems two hours a week, and then by Wednesday, they had to submit the manual to you and then you read it and tweaked it, you don't even have to do that. I've got this idea, which I shouldn't be sell it, saying in front of, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of subscribers we have, but I think there's room in the market for someone to set up a business, which someone, you can hire someone for like three months and they'll follow you around and in three months they'll give you a manual of your business. Hey, so I'm putting that out there. JV, anyone want a JV on that? Because would I pay five grand for someone to follow me around for three months and give me a manual and a load of recordings and all the videos of everything I know about my business? Damn right. Because you only have a business that can grow if you get out of the way. But another challenge of being an entrepreneur is you love what you do. If you don't love what you do, you shouldn't be doing it. But because you love what you do, you don't want to get out of the way because you want to do it. And then when you do get out of the way and you've hired someone, well, you're like, well, they can't do it as good as me. Uh, and, th and then you're doing their job for them and with them, but you're paying them. So there's kind of a lot of these ironies of being an entrepreneur. Now, we all have the same challenges when hiring. So, can't afford it. Don't want to manage people. Not a manager. Tried it. Don't want the baggage. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but... Every business started that way that is now a wildly successful business. So Apple started with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in the garage. And so every business owner that's ever made something big of their life or their business has had to embrace hiring. So you might as well do it now and not wait. Because the thing is, if you do it now, you'll make some mistakes and then when you really need to hire people, you've got people and you've had some mistakes. Whereas if you wait until you're really desperate, then you'll make all the mistakes and you'll be double desperate. For example, onboarding. So when we started hiring because we were desperate, our onboarding process was, there's all my fucking work, do it now. And then they go, oh, but Rob, and I'd go, come with solutions, not problems. And they'd be like, but I don't know how to log onto the computer. I'm like, I don't want small problems, go away. That is not a good onboarding process. But that's what you do when you're desperate because you hire people because you've got too much work and you can't handle it and you need to do your own thing. I did an episode on onboarding and I, got, I went up to Sue in HR. We're spending years making mistakes in onboarding and um, I don't know if you listened to that episode, but that's a lot of history and making a lot of mistakes to give you a really good solid onboarding process. We've uh, got a new um, head of finance and Mark's I had a board meeting with Mark this morning. Mark's like, when can I go and give the head of finance this, 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 and this? Because he's, you know, he's got some things he wants to sort out. And we're like, 
in a month when she's gone through the onboarding process. Um, but you know, if he goes and if if he goes and gives her all the finance stuff he's got, he's going to break her, and she'll be gone in about four minutes. Um, yeah, I could obviously spend, as you can gather, John, a long time talking about this. So hopefully that helped, John. All right, cool. Who's next? You don't mind Sam, do you, Sam? Good. Uh, this is actually Cecia's question, but she's lost her voice. Okay. So I'm saying it for her. Uh, what has been your biggest challenge in business and what is your current challenge? My biggest challenge is also my most exciting part of running a business and it is just generally growth. We've grown 40% year on year since we started and in the heyday when Microsoft was the biggest company in the world, um, Bill Gates, because I read up on him and studied him a lot, said that he was at 50% year on year. So that's good. And I know that any more than that is pr probably unsustainable for decades. But when you grow that fast, because it is fast, things break. So I've now had, in about eight years of having PAs, I think I'm on to number 11. And I'm the only common denominator in all the things that went wrong. So I'm clearly not easy to work for. Now, I think I'd be the best person in the world to work for, so I obviously am completely deluded. But, you know, when my life's been chaotic, I've clearly passed that chaos onto my PA without finding a way to protect her from that, for example. So, you know, that's been a challenge. You know, no matter how many problems you solve, you all, there's more problems, there's more challenges. But I have a clear vision that I want to have a global business, that I have a global vision, that I want to help millions and then billions of people across the world become financially literate, educated and then free. So for me, these challenges are also exciting opportunities because I, I feel like I've done a lot of work on being a boss to a PA and I'm much better than I was. And I listen to feedback from everyone, from Mark, from Catherine, my MD and business partner, you know, who know me and they've given me feedback that I've improved. And I've taken feedback from existing PAs and past PAs and so instead of thinking, oh, well, this isn't working because I've had 11 PAs in eight years or whatever, I'm thinking I am absolutely going to find the right one that's going to stay with me for years to prove to the world that I'm not completely insane. <laughs> and so I have that attitude towards my problems where the bigger the problem is, the more I'm like, well, I want to solve this to prove this. And I love doing that to the haters. You know, I want them to get, you know, I want to get out the pipe and I want them to smoke my success. And so, you know, when they go for you, it's like, well, you know, you don't like that because it's a bit painful. But that challenge, you know, you, you, if you run away from that, then that problem is always a ceiling to your success. Whereas if you grow through it and you solve it, basically the rewards come. So the, the followers, the fans, the money, the reach, the brand, the exposure, the opportunities, whatever else it is that you want. But I don't know, I've, I've just really loved I love business, I love property, I love doing the podcast, I love meeting people like you, it's, I just love to do it. So I'd be quite ungrateful, you know, if I didn't acknowledge that. I mean, there are people in the third world, you know, that, that can't even eat. So who am I to moan about a few business problems? You know, if I ever do start bitching and moaning on social media or to you about my business problems, you have permission to slap me you have permission to remind me on Facebook, stop bitching and moaning. We've got, we're doing this massive extension on our house and it's like dusty and messy and I'm like, st I started whinging and moaning about it and I'm like, 
I'm spending hundreds of thousands of pounds doing an extension of my house. Stop bitching and moaning, you little bitch. Don't be a little bitch. You know, you're lucky. Don't be a little bitch. I don't say that to people, I say that to myself. <laughs> um, yeah, this is what it's like being in my head because this is like a conversation with myself. Um, so hopefully that was useful. Does the aircon actually work? Because we've got an aircon unit. Oh, is it? Oh, it's too loud. All right. Um, next. Yes, what's your name, sir? Hi Tom, what is your biggest business mistake and what did you learn from it? I don't want anything held back. Okay, I don't normally hold things back, but you should have got that uh, by now. So what's my biggest business mistake? Well, the, the honest answer, which isn't probably that sexy, but it's true, is not starting early enough. Uh, because I was given every opportunity by my dad who raised me to be an entrepreneur, who was entrepreneur, who was a millionaire then bust, a millionaire then bust, and he had loads of... My dad was one of the first people, I think, who bought pubs and realised that the money in the pubs was also in the real estate, you know, in the property of it. You know, like the whole McDonald's story, the value is in the real estate as well as the franchise. And he taught me that, that from a young age. And then from sort of 16 to 25, I squandered it. And I only really started in business properly um, when I was 26. Um, we've definitely made mistakes hiring. We've either hired because we're desperate, you've got a pulse, you've got the job. Um, and you do that because you think someone with a pulse is better than not having someone in the job. And, and that's not always the way. Um, so we've definitely made mistakes in hiring. I think it's really important when you run a business that you don't show your staff and the world your problems. And I think the, the, the leaders who really inspire me and who do great things in the world are the people who can walk on set, walk on TV, walk on stage and deliver like they're in the zone, even though they're going through a divorce or, you know, they're going through a phone hacking scandal or, you know, because everyone's got shit going on in their life. And when we started in business, we didn't know how to not chuck that onto our staff. For example, we look at the bank account. There's no money in it. Uh, and so you panic. So what do you do? You start getting, you know, you start beasting on your sales team. Come on, sell, sell. And I had an ex-boss who was really like that. And I didn't know why he was like that. But now I realise you have pre pressures and stresses as a business owner. And all he was doing was passing the buck to, to us. Sell these seven leads or you're fired, Rob. That's what he said to me once. Yeah. So, um, so I think now what I try to do is no matter what's going on, I've got to be a leader in the office and I've got to inspire them and make them laugh and motivate them and get to show them the vision and not carry with the baggage of whatever's going on. That's a great life skill, by the way. I know many of you in this room and of course listening across the world are speakers or will become speakers. Five minutes before you go on the stage, you'll get an email or a phone call with some really bad news, but you've still got to get yourself in state and you've still got to go and do a speech for all the people that have come to see you. And that's a skill that you can learn that I didn't have in the early days because it's a learned skill. And for me, the thing that helps develop that is gratitude. Like, I actually haven't had any issues today, um, so I haven't had to do that. But if I had had some issues and I brought it in, I'm not showing gratitude for you from driving all over the country to come and share your time with me. And I'm very grateful for this. And when I walked in and it, this place was full, I was like, wow, I had to check myself, you're coming to see me seems a little bit strange. And you know, so gratitude normally gets you out of that. Next. Yes, what's your name? 
Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hiya. Um, if you hadn't started Progressive Property, what do you think you'd be doing instead? Picking fag butts off the floor, going down to KFC, licking people's fingers. You know, it wouldn't have been pretty. <laughs> I was skint as an artist. I probably wasn't many weeks away from going bust. I struggled for, what, nearly two years, just about paying the minimum amount on the credit card and my mortgage. I shudder to think. Shudder to think. Yeah. Property saved my life. Before we come to Gordon, I just want to tell you something which will hopefully liberate you. It's okay to love money. And um, I feel like we're a bit of a, like an Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> meeting where it's like, you know, admitting it is part, you know, is half solving the problem. But you know, people say, oh, I don't want, an, I don't want a nice car. Yeah, they do. They want a nice car, they just don't want the same one as you have. But what they don't want is people judging them for the nice car. No one wants a shit car. Even if it's a Prius, even if it's a Tesla, or whatever. It doesn't have to be Ferraris and Lamborghinis and everything else. Can we all agree that we all want a nicer car? Yes. Can we all agree that we want a nicer house? Yes. It doesn't have to be look at me showy showy. It could be very classy and elegant, which is the opposite of me. That's fine. You've got way more class than me. Have a vintage Aston Martin and then one for driving when that breaks down, if that's what you want, because you'll need it. Um, I wanted Ferraris because I didn't get enough love as a kid, obviously. <laughs> but where some people say the love of money is the root of all evil, but money is also the root of all good. So every disease that was cured was cured, fueled and financed by money because you need money to do the research. Pretty much every major university in the world was funded by Dale Carnegie or Vanderbilt or the, uh, the American philanthropist billionaires. So all this bollocks about money is bad. It's just there's a lack of proper education around what money really is, which, as you know, is part of my global mission to help people understand. By the way, money does also fuel evil. It equally fuels evil to good because money is an expression of humanity. So money does what humanity does. And people are both evil and beautiful. If you're pushed, you'll be evil to someone else to save your family. We're all evil and we're all beautiful because every human being has every trait. And money is simply a manifestation, an expression of that, an exchange of value, a vehicle that exchanges the value of it. So when my publisher finally launches the fucking book, then I, hopefully this book will do some good in the world. It's very liberating, though, to finally go, there you go, I said it, I love money. Judge me. Gordon, sorry, Gordon, you've got your question ready. Uh, great to be here, Rob. Um, as the world is moving so quickly, what do you see is the next big thing entrepreneurs need to be ready for in the next 12 months? If you were going to say five years, I'd have said AI, VR. I don't know, did you listen to my podcast with Kevin Kelly? Yes, so I did an episode with him probably 100 episodes ago. Uh, and that's why I was inspired by quite a lot of my interest in. Now, I'm interested in where the world is moving because I want to be ready for when the world moves because I don't want to get left behind. And um, one of my mentors said to me, Rob, when you're disrupting, the most important competitor or business to disrupt is yourself. I.e., if anyone's going to put you out of business, it needs to be your new, better product, not your competitor. So that, so anything that can pr provide that. So the next 12 months, I just think is quite short term. So I think more of the same, embracing social media, 
you know, as a marketing vehicle, because by the way, the most important function in business is marketing. Because if you don't have marketing, you don't have leads. And if you don't have leads, you don't have sales. And if you don't have sales, you don't have money to, to count and manage. So for me in business, marketing is always the thing that's the most important. And what are the vehicles that are going to get us there? And of course, decades ago, people had to put, take massive ads out in newspapers and magazines that cost thousands and thousands. And now you can just have a Facebook page. So I'll, I'd like to watch where Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and whatever the new platforms that pop up between now and then. Because if people are listening to this not live in 12 months time, there's going to be the new one, isn't there? So for business, I think social media is really exciting. As a, as a marketing vehicle, yes, but as a vehicle to get your brand out there, but also as a mechanism to test. Because you can post on social media messages that if people respond to can come, become marketing messages. And if people don't, they don't work. Yeah, so one year I'd say that. Five years I'd say. In five years, drones are going to be delivering all of our goods and services to us. It's already happening now. Um, cars are semi-automated as it is. You know, they can change lane and park. And, um, you know, my cars have this cruise control feature where you just set it and it accelerates and brakes according to the car in front of you. And, of course, my Range Rover can park itself which is pretty good because I've not got a reputation for driving cars very well. You were going to say it. I, was, I wish Ferraris could not crash into News International buildings. That would be good. Um, but by the way, what's in, what's in mass market production is like decades beyond what actually can be done. So when this, so for example, property investor like yourself, many of you, in five years, you'll probably be viewing properties through a VI headset. Now, how, how great is that? If you're a deal packager, you're going to send out an email and people are going to put on their headset and do the viewings. And they're going to have a nose device where they can smell it. <laughs> now, by the way, and, I'm, and I know you're going to ask me why I know this, but in Japan, the VR for pornography is very advanced. And there's, there's other things you buy with your headset which make it very real. There is. And I haven't tested it. I'm getting married in two months. So I won't be testing that one. If you're 22 and single, you should use that as research. <laughs> oh, there you go. So the, 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 all, all the things we think are in the future are actually in the now. They're just not in the mass market yet, but they will be. That's so exciting. It's exciting when you know you'll embrace it. It's scary if you feel you'll get left behind by it. All right, cool. And it works for martial arts schools. It works for your property business. It works for... It works for any business. It works for a mom and pop business. It works for a bricks and mortar business. All right, great. Next, Kevin, what's your name? It's Andrew. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> good to know that you're mentoring yeah. me. Yeah, that's good. Um, does they ever... won't cut that out yeah. either. <laughs> does being disruptive, potentially verging on the egotistical, ever get in the way of being an entrepreneur? Is that loaded towards me? Oh, I wouldn't say that, Rob. Uh, I would say, yes, I would say business mastery is self-mastery. How you manage and master your ego is how you manage and master business. And it is a fine line. And the thing with the ego is, it's something that is very hard for us to admit we've got, but everyone's got it. But also it manifests in different forms. So if you think about the classic ego, I think the thing that we all picture is a narcissist you know, cocky, arrogant, but actually the ego doesn't always manifest itself like that. It can be fear. It can be, I'm not good enough. It can be, I'm not worthy. It can be, how are they going to judge me? It can be, what are they going to say about me? 
it can be things that happened when we were young or things that people put us down on that we haven't recovered from or way we, ways we were raised. So I think it's important when we say ego, it, do, it doesn't just mean that one thing, it means all things. But Mark and I talk about this a lot. The main growth we've had in business is in managing our emotions and your emotions are fueled by your ego. Someone says something that upsets you, that pisses you off. That's the ego that is giving you the emotion. And then what happens between the feeling and then opening your gob is the management. And I have for many years in my life been bad at that. And I still have my moments. <coughs> but I've definitely got better over the years. And it's balanced between giving myself love and talking myself up in areas where I have got skills and I am worthy, but I've always talked myself down is one half. And then another half is staying humble and not getting too far ahead of myself, which I can from time to time. And it used to be because I thought, oh yeah, I'm good at this, but it's not now. It's just the speed at which I do things can sometimes be a bit reckless. So I think one key thing to learn, by the way, when you manage people, this is the great, you're a parent or you're a manager, they're the two things that test your ego the most. Uh, and, and I think it's a great, they're great skills to learn. So when staff used to challenge me, I used to think they were challenging me. They're not. They don't, they don't know how I feel. They're just living their life trying to do what they do. So I think, yes, it can damage yourself being an entrepreneur. And I think if you can learn to think about the ramifications of what you're going to say or do, so that when you say or do it, you're doing it strategically, not emotionally, that is mastery. Because if you, if you know, sometimes you do want to make a controversial post. Sometimes you do want to be honest and candid and let it come from the heart and you don't want to colour things or PR things. Sometimes you want to show emotion. Sometimes you need to fight back. Sometimes you need to stop the bullying and fight back. But if you're doing it strategically rather than reacting, that, I think, is emotional mastery, and that, therefore, is business mastery. It's like fighting. It's like boxing. You, the boxers who brawl often lose. Some, you know, like, for example, they feel like they've got the opponent rocked. If you watch UFC or any boxing, any like, they've got the opponent rocked. So their emotions are kicking in, and they just go all out, and they lose the technique, and they get caught with a counter. Or they get in and brawl because they're angry, because this guy's been, you know, winding them up. Conor McGregor's so good at winding them up. He's doing it on purpose. One, so he get loads of PR, so he can make millions. And then two, so he can get under their skin. So they don't fight properly. But you watch Mayweather. He doesn't brawl. That guy boxes. And sometimes, oh, he's not very exciting to watch. Oh, he's a bit, you know, a bit mechanical or whatever. But he's fighting with his brain. So he's learned to manage his emotions. And so I love to learn from... But anyone who's grown big at anything has, has, to, has had to deal with emotional mastery. Anyone who's ever had any haters, the first time you get a hater, you have a full-on meltdown on them in public and you make yourself look like an idiot. And then you learn to say, thanks for the feedback, smiley face. <laughs> and then all of us, we all know what that means. That means fuck off. <laughs> but we've learned. But the thing is, haters don't hate you. Haters hate how you make them feel because you're a success and they're not. Because I know most of my haters and I know their past because I've been in this industry long enough. And I know it's them and not me. Because then when the next version of me comes along, they go and hate them just like they hated me.
So that's also business and emotional mastery. It's a fine line that you dance, though. Does, does that help? All right. Great. Next. What's your name, sir? Uh, Conrad. Hi, Conrad. As in Conrad MG on Facebook. All right, cool. I've got loads of you here. We're, we're Facebook friends, but we've not met yet. So, so, you know, it's funny the world has changed, doesn't it? Never met you, but I know you. Yeah. <laughs> Fire away. What's your question? Uh, say all the money in the bank ran out of Progressive and you had a funder of £1 million and you had to make it back, you know, your, the quickest way to get your return again. What, what would you do with Okay. So you're talking about progressive property or business in general? General property. Okay. Most entrepreneurs who've inspired me and I know and admire and respect will say the same thing. You can take my money away, but you can't take what I learned and my experience along the way. And so everything that you've learned is the answer to all your challenges, not a lack of money. So to answer your question, what would I do again to make the money back quickly? So if it was property and I'd ran out of money and I started again, I'd go and find a JV partner with plenty of money and I'd go and get myself a few rent to rents and I'd probably do some service accommodation if I could. And then as soon as I got enough under my belt, I'd go and do some commercial conversions. Now we don't do rent to rents because we don't need to because we've got the money. But if I didn't have the money, that's what I'd do. Um, I'd also learn to sell because, you know, you could take everything I've got and go and stick me walkable distance from anywhere and I could walk there and I know I could go and sell something if you gave it to me. And so I'd, I'd make sure I embrace that too. So around pop property, if I didn't keep the deals, I'd sell them on and deal package because that's a business, that's liquidity. Because property, you don't get liquidity until you've got enough assets that pay you the passive income and then you get liquidity and that can take you a while. So if you want the short-term liquidity, you need to trade, you need to sell, you need to be a business. And I always tell people you need capital and income strategies. Capital is building assets. So, you know, owning property. Income, liquidity is trading, it's making money, it's selling stuff and, you know, getting money now. And I think it's important to balance both. If it was general business, I would do, and as soon as I've learned how to do, I would monetize the doing by teaching. And the haters hate this, and I love that the haters hate this. The reason the haters hate this is because they've been doing it for 20 years and they've made no money out of teaching because they don't teach. They bitch and moan and whine, whine and complain. But the dirty secret that I know is, once you've done something to a good enough level, there's hundreds of thousands or millions of people across the world that would pay for your advice. And anyone else, and by the way, there are people who've got bigger training businesses than I have. And, um, you know, often we have a joke in Progressive that I'm going to teach a course on how to teach a course. And I probably will be coming soon. Because people want to, if one of people want to run a course and they don't know how to run a course. So you can, but you've got to have credibility by doing it. And I think, to be fair, Someone who teaches but doesn't do, that's not ethical, you know, like, but, um, so I'd quickly work out if I've got experience and what could I teach? Write books, do podcasts, run courses, do mentoring, do masterminding, all that kind of thing. Because we're at about 18 million pound a year in that world. That's not even, that doesn't, that's not even taking the income from any of our properties. So we've got income from that and we've got capital from properties. We've also got income from properties. So that's what I'd do. Oh, the money itself, would you use it to you know, spread across uh, deposits for mortgages or would you mm -hmm. buy them cash? If I had my own cash, 
I'd, I'd keep it in the bank and I'd go and find someone else's to play with. Now, I didn't have any money in the bank when I met Mark, and Mark Homer funded our first few properties. Then his mum did, then his stepdad step did, then my nan did, then my mum did, and then we went out of the family because basically we bled all the money dry. <laughs> you know, the family silver and everything was on the line, the, the rings, the, you know, the flog, the nan's jewellery, the lot. Uh, and then it's all stuck, because as you're in properties, you know, you put the money in, and then it gets stuck for a bit until you can get it out. Um, because sometimes people say to me, oh, well, should you raise money from family? A lot of people think it's a bad thing. Well, it worked for us, but it worked for us because we did it. We didn't know any other way, but we also respected family money. I, we managed it properly. So, yeah, if I had money, I'd look to do JVs with other people's money. Because here's the thing in property and business. There's always going to be something that blindsides you. You know it's smart to plan, but of course, when you have a challenge... It's the thing that you didn't know how to plan against. It's called bl being blindsided. So every now and again, you're going to get something that no matter how much you plan for, it's going to blindside you. A divorce, a change in the law, any, you know, all these things. So the, 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 there's the one thing that will keep you going through that. It's a stockpile of cash. So I want a nice, big, fat stockpile of cash. I don't want to go and burn that too quickly. So, uh, anyone else got a question that you prepared earlier? Jeremy. Shall I shoot then? Yes. Um, I think it's quite difficult to be really disruptive and transformational if you circulate in the same groups of people in the same industry all the time. Uh, and I think that builds a real consensus of opinion. So, have you, what tips have you got for breaking out of that consensus and being really disruptive? Could you ask the question a different way? Because I just want to make sure I understand it. Sure. If you always meet the same people in the same industry, all those people contribute to a consensus of opinion. Okay. That's not really that disruptive in yeah. my mind. So what tips have you got for breaking out of that? Because that's an easy clique, an easy rut yeah. to fall into. Go and meet new people. It's looking for a bit, a bit more than that, but... <laughs> like, I got the shit answer. John got 20 minutes, I got a shit answer. Thanks. For the f you said that really politely and beautifully, by the way. You're like, is that it? Um, I just would never be, I'd never get myself in that situation because I'd always be looking to meet new people and grow my business in different marketing areas. And I don't know, I don't, that's what I, you know, like, I don't not understand the question because I don't understand what you said. I don't understand the question because it's a bit like saying to me, how do you get passionate in business? Well, it's who I am. So, the kind of answer wasn't really that flippant as it seemed, because if you're in the similar circles and you get well known and it's a clique, how do you get out of that? Well, you either change who you are, but then they were like, who's this dude? Or you go and meet new people. One of the most exciting things in life, I think, is meeting inspiring people. Like, you know, I've met Arnold Schwarzenegger, spent a lot of time with him. You know, Joe's coming in a minute, he won The Apprentice. I've obviously met Lord Sugar, spent a lot of time with James Khan. He was my mentor for quite a long time. And you just look at those people and you just, it rubs off on you and it grows you. But when you're with the same people all the time and you're comfortable, it doesn't grow you. So I don't know if I do this consciously, but I always take Bobby on new golf tours. I enter him into new competitions. I try and speak to new parents as well as old parents. As soon as um, 
you know, when we were growing in Peterborough and we, we found out that Neville Wright, he was the main man here, he had worth hundreds of millions, he kiddie care, you know, so we went to go and find him instead of going to the same place with the same people. Is that, do you feel like you got a bit more value for the yeah, fact no, that you paid nothing to be definitely, <laughs> definitely better than the first answer. Thank, Thank you, you, yeah. I'm also aware of the fact that sometimes I talk a lot, so I was trying to be succinct. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, of course, if you're in a career, in a job, that's a bit harder, isn't it? Because you may have to be with someone. But if this is your own business and you're an entrepreneur, then you can go and do this. Because what I wouldn't do is change who you are. Now, Mark, for example, he's just joined a shooting club. And um, I know, he's tough. Um, you, your face said it. it like, Ew, <laughs> shooting club. Um, but the thing is, like, Mark and I, we get into business, we go to the networking events, we go there for a while. You know, we're the youngest, we're the stripy shirts, I'm the gobby one. We go there for a while, we disrupt the place, we do a load of business, we get bored, we go to the next one, we go to the next one. I say to Mark, you know, we can afford it, let's learn how to fly the helicopter. You've always wanted to, I wanted to do. So we go to the flying club, they're like, who are these two young, you know, whatevers. Mark still had spiky hair, I couldn't grow a beard back then. You know, and it's like, and, and, we, and, and, and so then we go to the flying clubs and then you get a bigger helicopter and then you go and land at all the different airports and then Mark joins the shooting club. And it's just like, do, 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 before you know it, you know so many people. You know, Mark and I know Andres Paniotto pretty, you know, pretty well. Um, catch up with him fairly frequently. And then you think, oh, I'm going to hire a private jet because I can. And then you go and do that and then you meet some other new people. And, and for me, that's like new people, new people, new people, new people, new people. Um, my podcast, you know, all the great people I get to meet on the interviews. And it's like, I know I'm going to grow when I meet those people. And they don't know me, so I haven't got a, like a consensus of who I am because they've never met me. Scares you a bit sometimes as well because you meet, you meet Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, who's been like your hero forever and you're like, you're petrified. Then you realise he's a lot shorter than you and he dyes his hair and you feel a bit better. <laughs> Still my idol, but like, you know, but like, so for me, I, you know, there you go. At least I feel like you've got your money's worth now. No problem. Hello. Joe! He's alright. You alright? How are we doing? You walked in like you just won The Apprentice <laughs> or something. <laughs> you alright mate? How you doing mate? You well? Good to see you. Hi Take everybody, how are you doing? For those of you that don't know Joe, Joe is from Peterborough and he's moving to London because that's what everyone does if they get successful in Peterborough. <laughs> they move out. And you won the, which Apprentice was it? 2015. The 2015 mm -hmm. Apprentice. He's got a, a hugely successful business now and obviously is Lord Sugar's business partner. Um, he's done this out of his own time. Well, at least I haven't received an invoice yet. <laughs> so if you can make him feel good, that would be great. So thanks for donating your no time problem. to come and, you know, be on the podcast and obviously um, inspire everyone here. So we're yours for the next day. I have to go at 4.30 because I'm meeting Bobby at the golf course at 4.35. Um, you guys can stay if you want, but that's when I must go. So let's go. Part two. Who wants to start? Yeah, microphone over to you. Hey guys, my name's Tom. Um, so, best podcast and best audio book, one each. Life Leverage and The Disruptive <laughs> Entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> um, for me, I'm reading Art of War at the moment, which I think is very, very good. I'm learning a lot of strategy from that. I bet you love all that. of that. I bet you love <laughs> it. <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> really getting to understand how to... Um, take on your enemy, which I find quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> how to dominate the competition, how to win. Um, best podcast was probably the one that I did with Rob, I think. 
I, I feel like this is the second question where we need to answer this again <laughs> because, you know, like they didn't come all the way for this. So do you listen to podcasts other than the ones you're on? Um, not as much as what I should do, really, to be honest. Um, I've just started, but I do read, I listen to a lot more of audio books. Um, so that's what, that's what I spend most of my time learning from. But yeah, I've signed up to this Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, but um, I'm going to start listening a lot more after today, I think. Yeah, I bet you'll go straight to the two episodes <laughs> you're on. <laughs> it's hard to say best because like Joe said, he's telling you the book he's listening to at the moment. Uh, and also it's where you're at. So I like the James Altucher show. And I've, that's the one I've liked the most for the longest. Um, so I've had ins and outs and fads with some that I, I maybe thought, so I, I dip in and out of Tim Ferriss's one. Um, but, you know, so, uh, sometimes some of the interviewees are a bit samey. Um, but, you know, I mean, that, in, that podcast is the, the really big podcast in business that's inspired a lot of others. So I would obviously give a lot of credit to that. Um, but now I probably only list one out of every six episodes. Um, but, you know, if you're into business and it's sort of wrapped with a bit of health and that, then... Um, Tim Ferriss' one is good. James Altucher, yeah, is good. Um, for short, sharp bursts, I like the Robin Sharma Mastery Sessions. And Ty Lopez's one, because um, they're just 10 minutes. And um, I admire what Ty Lopez has done. And um, he's, uh, in fact, personality-wise, him and Joe are probably quite similar. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but I have very specific ones for very specific niches. Um, a couple of the Joe Rogan ones are good, but uh, you know, like there's a lot of martial arts ones in there. Um, his one with Henry Rollins, I just loved. I just thought it was awesome, um, and I, I loved the Tim Ferriss one with Arnie. Um, I mean, he he's the interviewee I'd love to bag. I'm currently listening to Shoe Dog, which is the story of Phil Knight who set up Nike. That's quite fun. It's quite um, it's written in a way that it's almost like a story. So it's very descriptive. And sometimes I'm like, just give me the juice of what you did. Don't, you know, go all expressive. And, but then that makes it more visual. Um, so yeah, that, any autobiography of someone who's been successful, I'll be all over. So we'll, as soon as a new one comes out. Yeah. Best wow, you can't, how can you beat Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger? <coughs> okay, and obviously the Steve Jobs one written by Walter Isaacson was epic. That scene, when Steve Jobs is in his last days and he goes and meets his nemesis, um, Bill Gates, and they're there talking and they've got that mutual admiration because Steve's about to die. And they almost say like, we've been fighting for 30 years, but I respect what you do, <laughs> even though your software's shit, you know? <laughs> and I respect what you do, even though, you know, you th blah, blah, blah. Even though, you know, we had this deal and you screwed me over. And it's like something out of the end scene of Godfather or something like that, <laughs> the mutual respect of the enemies. That scene. It's like, you, and you get that in a book. That's epic. Um, but yeah, obviously they're the main ones. I thought Chris Evans's one was brilliant. I thought uh, Gordon Ramsay's one was brilliant. I mean, Chris Evans is one of the most positive guys and you don't know. But you, when you listen to these autobiographies or read them, you realise why they're successful. Because sometimes we go, oh, they're successful because, no, they're successful because, no, they're successful. No, they're successful because they made it. And you listen to those audiobooks and you realise that's why they're successful. That's a brilliant autobiography. That inspired, mm. that inspired you to go on the show, didn't it? Yeah, so I, was, I read that when I was 22. My mum got me it for Christmas. Paperback version weren't actually that one. And I think 
at that point in my life, I was really searching for something to do. I knew that I wanted to be successful. I didn't know how to start. I needed to find some motivation. And that was really the first book that I read. I mean, I was cheesy as it sounded, especially when I went on the show and said, this is why I'm here. This is what got me started. You know, when you start to read a journey like Lord Sugar's, how he came from nothing, from a London council estate, and how he's been able to achieve billionaire wealth in one lifetime, you know, it's incredible. Um, and that made me think I can get up and do the same. And then I literally, two weeks later, took out a 15 grand personal loan from Tesco's, had it in the bank. Two days later, started Impregas, bought a van, the company was born. Had no business plan, didn't know anything about accounts, had no uniform, no branding, no work lined up. But all I knew was that he could do it, so, so could I. You know, and that was great, great inspiration for me to just get out there and do it. And I think um, in life, you've just got to start. A lot of the times you want things to be perfect, you know, and you want, you want everything and you want to know where you're going, but you've really just got to jump in and then work it out because the answers are out there, you know, and you can, you can leverage everything. Internet tells you everything. People tell you everything. Ask the questions and you will get the answers. Hi, Fred. My name's Laura. Hello. Um, from both of you, you've obviously had dealings with Lord Sugar on different levels. Um, out of all of you think that he's gone through and taught you and trained you, what would you say are the three most um, important things that you've taken away from that? Um, number one for me was to, was to get my opinion across or my point across very quickly without waffling in a boardroom situation. You know, people in his position don't have the time and they have a very short attention span and you don't have very long to capture it. So you don't waffle and get your point across. Um, that was the main thing um, for me very, very early on that I took from The Apprentice and I took from the boardroom situation and I could see how other people were talking themselves into trouble every single time. Um, so in a board meeting, be short, sharp, get your point across straight away. Um, number two was to understand, seems simple, but always understand your numbers and your margins and to not take every opportunity in a business environment just because it looks attractive, just because it looks like lots of work, because um, you can end up being a busy fool. Um, and then number three, I'll think about number three. Rob, do you want to take right. number one? <laughs> well, I'll just make this nice and quick and easy. Uh, my experience was exactly the same. So Mark and I met him for the first time and he was sitting there signing books. And he went, hello. And then we started talking to him and he went, uh, no, yeah, no. And then if we started talking to him and we were halfway through a sentence, he was like, just straight back. You got that much time with him. If you didn't engage him, if you weren't interesting, if you weren't asking good questions, and he didn't give a shit. He was just like, whoosh, whoosh. And um, I think I admire that in him because I'm a bit softer. And sometimes you have to be able to say no. Or give people honest, candid feedback. And obviously he has no problem with that. Um, so that was the first thing. The next thing is with numbers. So we were talking about some commercial deals that we were doing. And it was mostly, I was sort of sat here and Mark was there. And it was ding dong, ding dong. Alan Mark, Alan Mark, Alan Mark, and he was grilling him, this, 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 you know, yield, return on capital, invested, blah, 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 and because Mark knew all that. 
And it was like you had, you know, Federer and Nadal having a great <laughs> rally. I was just like, oh, I wish you could do a selfie video here. Oh, although I don't think there were selfie videos then, so, but you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, again, knowing your numbers. And three, his ability, to art, his ability to ask very good questions. Like his questions would be like, they'd go, ooh. You know, like each time, like, oh yeah, that's a good one. Ooh, did I think of that? He had good. And the more successful you get and the busier you get, you have to be like that if you want to manage being successful and busy. And because some people at the start that aren't very successful, oh, well, he's not, not really a very warm guy and he doesn't really give you dinner. But the reality is, if you want to be a billionaire, what have you all get through in a day? So, yeah, that was um, a very similar experience. Yeah. Number if, three, if, sorry, go on. If I was with a billionaire I hadn't met before, I'd ask questions to them like Lord Sugar asked to me. I would not be like, hi, I'm Rob. If you, as soon as you start talking about yourself, uh, just ask the question, whatever the question is. Sorry, yeah, I think the third thing for me, which he's probably taught me indirectly, is, to, is how to handle myself in a business environment. And when you sit across the table from him, I feel so confident now with whoever I speak to. So when in the early days of business, if I went into a small organisation, I'd be quite nervous about going to speak to the owner of it. But when you sit in front of that billionaire and he's as brutal and as real and as hard as he is, when you can handle yourself in that environment, it's given me the confidence to walk into any room with no fear. And that's like it. you did in this one. <laughs> <laughs> you swung the door open. <laughs> Love it. No problem. Okay, we'll go to Jazz and then to Sam. Uh, question from Joe, what was your biggest self-discovery from your experience on The Apprentice? That I can back what I say I can do. Um, and I think having incredible self-belief and self-confidence, people, when you tell them that you're going to do something, they think that you're talking shit or, you know, you've just got a bravado or you're cocky. Um, you know, but when I went away and I told the small people, the small group of people that I was allowed to tell um, that I was going on to The Apprentice and the next time they saw me I was going to be the winner, I, I truly, truly believed that. And then when I came out of it and I achieved it, it allowed me to believe that I can do whatever I set my mind to. You know, I can become whoever I want to be, president, king of the world, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. If I say I'm going to do it, it's done. It's as simple as that. Who's, from all your dealings with Lord Sugar, with the exception obviously of him, who's been the most um, inspirational and had the most impact on your business development? Um, I suppose it's my uncle. I mean, my uncle, when, when, we, when we were growing up as kids, um, we didn't have a lot of money. You know, my mum worked, my dad didn't at all. Um, and my uncle was very, very successful. And I always used to see him once every three months, once every six months, coming down in a suit, always brand new car, you know, top of the range motor at the time. He would come to my nan's and my dad had some banged out A-Red Sierra that would break down every week. We couldn't afford to repair it. You know, we didn't have, we had a TV because my uncle bought us a TV. We had a hi-fi because my uncle bought us a hi-fi. And I think from very, very early on, I looked at my dad and I looked at him and I said, that's the man that I want to be when I grew up, um, when I grow up, sorry. And then um, in business, he's been a very, very close mentor of mine, um, coaching me personally and, and through, the business, through the business world and environment, you know, and he's, he's kept very, very close contact with me over the last, especially the last 12 months, because it's been very, very tough. 
very, very hard working with Lord Sugar when there's been a lot, a lot of pressure and I've took on a lot. So he's probably one of the main reasons I am who I am because if I hadn't have seen at a very early age that there was another life, and I think a lot of people grow up just seeing one thing, and if they never see another route or somebody else in their family to show them that they can be successful or somebody around them, they don't know it's available to them. But I always used to remember questioning myself as a kid, how can one man have this? How can one man have this? What makes them different? And how can I have that? And that was probably the main driver very, very early on because there was no way I was going to stay at the bottom in my eyes. Sorry, my uncle, yeah. Rob, you just said um, Lord Sugar asked you some questions and then you would ask those questions of other billionaires and same to you, Joe. What would those questions be? What are they? Sorry, I, I so um, you said that when you met Lord Sugar, he asked you some questions about your, I guess, your business, your life, okay. um, and you would yeah. ask those of other people. So what are yeah. those questions? What should we be asking you? Okay, so... Uh, the first time I met Lord Sugar, most of the time, it was Lord Sugar and Mark having a commercial property cockfight. So I was like, ding, 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 ding. So um, that was most of the time. I don't actually remember what I asked him. It's a shit answer, but it's the true one. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that we should be asking you that we're not asking you? Because I know, I know people ask the same questions all the time. I've, like Some of your answers I've heard before because I've listened to all your podcasts. Yeah. Um, and you say similar things like that opening of your mindset and opening up to world like money, which is what your book's all about. But what should we be asking you to get the most from this time here okay. with you? So I think the things I would have asked Lord Sugar were specific things that we wanted the answers to. And I think that's a good thing to do. Because when you're in position of myself and Joe and Lord Sugar in the extreme, you get asked the same ones mindset what would you do differently if you started again nothing wrong with them i like answering them but we've answered those a dozen times whereas if someone says to me a specific question about a specific thing it's probably quite new and refre refreshing and interesting so i didn't i don't want to meet someone like alan sugar the first time and say things like what does it take to be successful because i just for me that's not the right thing of course they're here and you're there but you don't want to put you there um so most of the time when I meet these people, it's conversational. I'm not grilling them. We're having a conversation of which I'm trying to sort of chase down. What about that? What about that? What about that? So yeah, I just don't remember the questions I asked him. I mean, you know, he's not my best mate. I haven't spent like weeks and weeks and weeks with him. I've spent, you know, a few occasions with him. Um, I think a good thing to do is to get them to talk about what they're doing because what a billionaire is doing is going to be educational to you. Get them comfortable talking. Um, he was frosty when I first met him, very frosty. Um, and the rapport was built by him and Mark geeking out and him sort of respecting the speed of Mark's answers. And that was where the rapport was built. Um, yeah. I don't have any scripts. I think, I think what was behind your question is, What's really good questions to ask really successful people. So that's what I was. But the fact that I, I don't remember what I ask Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't remember what I ask, I don't know, Dorian Yates. You know, all these people who are like titans. I can't remember a single question. What I am trying to do, though, as a podcast interviewer and then as someone who's meeting them, is not ask them the same shit everyone else is asking. Mm. Because I want them to think, Rob, like a lot of times they get feedback in the interviews that they, they really love the interviews. They used to be asked the same old shit by a journalist. 
And then I interview them and go down all these roads and ask them stuff they haven't been asked before. And that's what I want to be to them. Someone who's not the usual. So there's not really a script for that. It's a feel of finding out what they're interested in and going down there. And then when, they get, when they're talking about stuff they're interested in, then they're comfortable and you can throw this one in there and this one in there. So it's kind of like a dance where they're leading a little bit more. But now you've got me thinking I should create a new course on what questions to ask billionaires. And then, and, and I'm not saying that to, because it, it's a smart question. I know where you were coming with the question, but I, I tried to think, not just with Lord Sugar, I can't remember all the, I mean, I spent loads of times with James, James Cummings. We went down to his office, spent days there. I can't remember anything I asked him. And I'm glad I'm not asking him the usual spiel, because then he's probably like, mm. Because, you know, I respect people's time. And I want people, when they're with me, to feel comfortable in the time that they've got with me. Because I know they're going to want to spend more time with me. So how can I make things different? I think it depends on what answer you're looking for. So I don't think there's... As you said, there's a lot of generic questions. There's a lot of the same things. How did you do it? How did you become successful? How many hours do you work? You know, what answer are you looking for? What suits you? What, what's going to be tailored? And what's going to give you what you're looking for? If it's something specific, then ask it. If you think they can answer it, if it's generic, you could probably find that out anywhere. So if you do have a window of time with somebody that you really want to get something out of, try and tailor just one good, valuable question that really home bit, homes in on your answer. Does that make sense? Also, if, um, if you're already studying a lot of successful people and listening to a lot of podcasts, you know, and you can notice the, the common things that are coming out, and what advice would you give to yourself 10 years ago? I started using that on my podcast. What advice would you give to younger self? I've stopped that now because I want to be a bit different. Um, but the magic you get is when someone says something in a conversation that you didn't know how to ask to get the answer because you're not asking the same questions. So it's conversations and then a little, a little some, someone will say something and you'll go, that's interesting. And then you'll chase down that with your questions and you'll open this loop here. And, and, you know, my business partner, Mark, he's very good at that. Sometimes you can feel a bit interrogated. You can feel like he's had six pints of blood out of you after you're meeting with him. But he's very good at drilling in and directing the conversation where he wants to take it to find out the information that he needs. And a lot of that is making people feel comfortable. So my job, and I picked this up from Tim Ferriss' podcast, because I never used to do this at first, but he learned this and then I learned it from him. Like when you have your interviewees, your guests, you've got to spend some time with them before. Because A, you don't know them, and B, they might have just been interviewed by some asshole journalist before who's trying to trip them up and all this stuff. So spend a bit of time with them, build a bit of rapport, get the conversation going, make them feel comfortable. You know, I'm not going to ask you any questions that are tripping up. You've got full autonomy on editing process. If we say anything, we'll start again. Make them feel comfortable. Yeah, so what's your name? Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Hi yeah, this is a question for both of you. Uh, in my business, some days I'm really efficient and get loads done, and then other days I've got nothing done. So have you got any tips on how to get a good, consistent workflow? I'm the same, you know, and I think that happens to everybody. Um, you know, you have a sigh of relief <laughs> when you said that. Ah, oh, thanks, because it's everyone. Some days you're a machine and some days you do nothing. I mean, for me, my most effective way of achieving the things I want in the day is just writing them down and simply ticking them off as they're done. Um, you know, it's very simple, but very, very effective. And I find if I don't do that, you can just go into the office and you can just walk around and you can just open your laptop and answer a few emails, take a call, ring somebody. Oh yeah, yeah I'll go and do that. You know, having, having time against each thing and having a good solid list of activities is probably the most simple and effective way 
and make myself productive. Simple. Uh, have you read Life Leverage? Okay, so there's a section in it about compartmentalizing your diary. And I think because we're emotional people, because people are emotional, we will, if we allow ourselves, be controlled by our emotions. I, when you feel good and inspired, you're going to go and get some deep work done. When you're tired, bored, pissed off, upset, whatever, uh. So if you compartmentalise your diary so that you know the times of the day when you're productive and you're not and you put your most important work in the times when you're productive, then you win. So notice the question about what would be my ideal Sunday. Now, by the way, that day is, mo is, is most days for me. But I do that deep work, strategy, vision, leverage, ideas, you know, my million pound idea, straight after my coffee, 6.15, to sort of 7.30, 7.45, and I'll stop there because that's when Bobby putts before he goes to school. Now, if I did that at 11 o'clock when I'm pining for my next coffee and I'm dribbling, it's not going to work. I get really tired by sort of 6 o'clock because I get up at 5.30, and whilst I don't work hard, I use my brain a lot, and I'm, so I get brain tired, which means you could talk to me, and I'm just like, because it's not physical tiredness, it's brain tiredness. And so nothing ever goes in the diary after six o'clock, ever. No calls, no nothing. I won't do any work. I won't do any important emails. Um, actually, if you put emails that aren't important at six o'clock, it's good because I just end up going, delete, delete, delete. Can't be bothered, delete, delete. <laughs> it's quite a good way to clear your inbox. <laughs> the bollocks, delete, delete. I normally reply to everyone, but not you, delete. You know? <laughs> um, so what you do is you, you, you do a bit of testing and self-hacking, as they call it. Have, do a workload for a week or two. Since when you're, because by the way, artists, they're often the other way, where they're on it at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, but then they get up late. And when you know your patterns, you match it with your most important tasks. And then you can find, you can do two hours deep work, don't really need to do anything else. So let the diary manage you rather than your emotions manage what you do. The next thing is, think about achievement in chunks, not in days. Because actually, most people don't have a shit day and a good day. They have a day. And good things happen in days and shit things happen in days. Now, by the way, when you get big enough in your business, you will never have a good day or a bad day. You'll have a good day that had some shit and you'll have a shit day that had some good. And, you know, like we used to have good days infrequently and bad days infrequently and normal days for the rest. Noth there's no day now where there's not something good and something shit that happens in it. So just see it as a chunk of time. Yes, microphone. What's your name, sir? It's Stephen. Hi, Stephen. So how did you convert from sort of the employee man's mindset into more of an entrepreneur? Um, it was pretty business. easy for me because I didn't really ever have an employee mindset. <laughs> I never really had a proper job. I had a job cleaning toilets once when I was 14. Um, and I lasted about 12 minutes. I had various bar jobs because I mostly wanted to... Um, chase the women on the other side of the bar, so I didn't take that very seriously. I'm, very, I'm completely unemployable. I've never had an employee mindset. I've had a, you're going to tell me what to do, even though you're my boss, you can fuck off. I'm having none of that. I'll do what I want, and then I get fired. Um, and then one day it clicked. Oh, maybe I should not have a boss. Um, so I don't know how to answer that question because I've never had an employee mindset. Um, what about you, Joe? <laughs> me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Started from school with me. I don't like being told what to do. So if you don't like that, it's not good working no. for anybody. I got fired by my dad twice. <laughs> yeah, he threw a box of crisps at me once. 
Like, you know, those big Walker's packs, 48. In front of like 100 customers, lobbed them. About five F-bombs came with the box. I kicked it down the thing and I said, you can stick your job up your ass and then walk next door to home and thought, what the fuck am I going to do now? I'll be an artist then. Yeah, that's how my art career started. Um, yeah, uh, if your dad fires you twice, you know you ain't made for a job. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wouldn't... Sorry about that. I don't think we can answer your question. <laughs> oh, having a roundabout way, that's good. Oh, I, I'd feel guilty if you came and, you know, you've driven all this way and your one question we couldn't answer. Good reply. Yeah. Yes. Hi there, Rob and Joe. Um, I'd just like to... I've always wondered, when I come to Progressive, I always get massive inspiration and, and it's, uh, it's massively uplifting. For the people that, that work here, when you're teaching people to get out of their jobs and financial freedom and stuff, how does... I'm going to have three letters on my desk by the end of the day. How does, uh, how does that work? Please don't fucking ask that. Good question. <laughs> I'm interested to hear this answer. You can piss off. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... Um, I think I respect more now than I did how people are and what they want from their life. And if you'd have listened to me, because I don't, I think if you listen to my work over the last few years, I might have been sack your boss, be your own boss five years ago. But I don't think you hear me say that anymore because actually that's bad advice for the wrong types of people. And now that I've got 11 years of experience and I've seen a lot, still learning, still a student, not perfect, but actually some people, they shouldn't, set up their own business. It's bad advice. They don't know what to do. They're not self-managing. They like to be told what to do rather than Joe and I are the opposite. Some people like to be given a clear process. And I see them as entrepreneurs where I want them to be able to grow their career and flourish and have some autonomy. But ultimately, we give them the security, which is the paycheck. And that's how I see everyone in my business. I just had a look at the, um, we had a look at the yearly salaries just today. And there are a lot of people that are earning a lot of money in this business. And I sold them that dream and they probably didn't believe it. One guy had a, about a 30 grand job in a car and he dropped it down to 17 only here. And he did 82 grand last year. So um, why the hell's he gonna wanna leave? And not everyone's like me and Joe and you. Not everyone is born to be an entrepreneur. Now what we wanna attract at Progressive and Unlimited Success is intrapreneurs. I, you've got the entrepreneurial mindset and flair, but for reasons that are personal to you, you don't want to set up your own business. Because by the way, it's hard. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things you've got to do. Now some people, they're great at a technical skill, a designer, an innovator, a coder. That's what they're great at, but they know they're not great at being an entrepreneur because that's a completely different thing. Now also, we've had plenty of people who've come up to us and said, Rob, I'm leaving because you're too good at what you do and I'm going to set up my own business. It happens, but if anyone's going to leave, surely that's a great reason to leave. Rather than, Rob, I slept with someone else in the team and we're both leaving, which has happened a couple of times, and that's my least favoured way. And they were both my PAs. <laughs> and it wasn't me. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, Mark had uh, a drink with a guy called James who left our company, and he was a bit... And we've got a great relationship with him and he's got nine staff now. And he said, oh, Mark, you know everything you used to say about me? I, n I now understand that. I was hard to, you know, um, manage because he's now he's a manager and he knows it. So, um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I have a bit more of an abundance mindset now. I won't colour what I say just in case someone leaves. But I think you can be an entrepreneur in a company. 
which you probably couldn't 15 years ago. For example, we've now implemented flexi time in the office. So pretty much give or take, you can come in and go pretty much as you want. And, um, you know, I'm not breathing down everyone's necks every five minutes and, you know, blah, blah, blah. This was Tom's idea to do. Tom event managed this. Tom set it all up, you know, and, um, and Tom uh, was head of design and he's moved into head of innovation. And I mean, you know, if, if you can accept having some accountability and you get to play with toys for a job, which is maybe what a head of innovation will become. I don't want to d demean John to Tom's job, but it's going to be a, a role of that. That's pretty freaking cool. Now, some people may think I'm going to work for five years for a genius entrepreneur and then I'm going to leave. So sometimes you're a, a beautiful affair rather than a marriage. And we are hopefully a beautiful, beautiful affair with some people. Obviously, I want, I want like to be a marriage with everyone, but yeah. So yeah, out of any company you'll ever meet, we probably have people fire us the most. Yeah, but there's a lot of things you get here. You're going to have another guy the same question. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm in that sort of boat where I'm in a job where I'm coming out of it, but I'm sort of going in consultancy to, into another business where I've been given a little bit of license to help yeah. grow the business, but it can link to property as well. So if because I'm probably one of those persons who's not really good with bossing either. So with that sort of my, that sort of direction, do you think it's better to allow someone to have that sort of creative um, space to grow themselves and grow the business as well? Now, you know, there you're on a double-edged sword there. Because if you allow your team members to do consultancy work, you can distract them from their actual work. Because let's be honest, that's what you're doing. You wouldn't say it to your boss, but you're selling it. Like, but, but ultimately, you're moving into property and you're not really talking about a future and a job. So we have to be careful with that. Because if we allow our team to do other things, they're distracted. And we don't want to be in that awkward position where that's the thing. And then they go and tell everyone else. So we generally, it's one or the other for us. There are people that have earned hundreds of millions of pounds a year and they're employed. So if someone works well being employed, you can still be a wild success. Terry Leahy of Tesco started stacking the shelves. That's a great autobiography, 10 words. Started stacking the shelves at what, 17 years old. The CEO, probably, I don't know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Now, you know, like um, maybe some of the people who early Facebook and early Microsoft and early Apple, is it Ive or Iver, Johnny Ive, Johnny Iver? He's obviously not an entrepreneur, but he obviously works great with an entrepreneur. And I hope that's the relationship I have with Tom and Harry. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not going to hire me. I'd be the worst person to work for me to me. But other people could work well with me, for example. So I've, ne I've never criticised anyone for having a job. That's wrong, because if you, if you tell someone to leave a job, but a job is right for them, that's, that's demeaning. Um, and you can, you can be wildly successful in a role. Do you watch Billions? It's bloody awesome. But, um, you know, you've got uh, the uh, Axe. And of course, he's got, his, um, he's got Wags, his main man. Now, Wags, his main man, is employed. But he's ridiculously rich because he, he feeds and inspires off that entrepreneur. That's what I want to be to my team. But if, you, if it's in your heart to be your, the entrepreneur... What you do is you make a plan for the day you're going to resign and then you resign. And you put the date in the future and you resign on that date no matter what. Or, 
and I've asked this for a couple of my team members and they've, do, they've done this. If I sense I've got someone who's got greatness in them, but I think one day they'll leave, I'll say to them, if you're going to leave, you come to me first and pitch me the idea that you're going to leave with and give me a chance to partner it with you. What's your name, sir? David. Hi, David. So, so in the early days of business, how do you deal with the dark days and the frustrations when you haven't got that network around you? So, um, tomorrow is another day. We all have dark days, but tomorrow is another day. And um, I've got things that get me down, but I just know if I can get to the end of the day, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be hooning it to Costa Coffee and it's all going to be all right. So that's how I, I deal with it, because you can't say you don't have them, everyone has them and billionaires have them. It's how you deal with them, but you just have to drag yourself through the day. I find that being grateful for everything in your life really helps, because if you think you're having a down day, and then you realise you've got healthy kids and you've got healthy parents and you've got money and you've got someone who loves you and you've got, you know, a team like we have here and you've got your health. Those dark days do lighten up. So those two things really work for me. Gratitude and just getting through the day. Yep. Thanks, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming down. See you soon. See you later, Rob.